Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is Daniel, the sweep of history. Daniel 2, we've been talking all around the subject actually of Daniel 2 is a dream that a king has by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, that, that dream basically is a fast forward through history all the way to the very end, past today until Jesus is standing back physically on the earth. And so all that's encompassed in just one, it's not a little chapter, but one chapter uh, in, a, in a single book in Daniel. Daniel does, is going to do that a couple times for us. Uh, Daniel 7 is going to do that again, and then we're going to have other glimpses of that in other places. But Daniel 2 is, is just that. It's, it's a fast forward all the way through God, God giving us uh, ahead of time all the things he's going to be doing. Uh, we're going to look at that in just a second, but first of all, I want to say this. I don't know if you noticed, no doubt you did, uh, the hoopla about Jerusalem this week. What happened in Jerusalem? Our president moved... Um, I guess, how many administrations have we had that have, pro have promised to move the United States Embassy to uh, Jerusalem? If you had, by the way, if you had been with us, if you had gone with us to Israel, shame on you if you haven't, but if you had gone with us, you would have known that we've always had an embassy there. They're not saying that. We've always had a, a, a Part B embassy there. There's, all, there's always been a presence, United States presence, in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, but it wasn't official because obviously it causes lots of problems. And so our president did what none of our other presidents have been doing, which is, which is the right thing in my opinion, is to move our embassy there because it is the capital of, of Israel. The, the reason why other presidents did not do it, in all due respect to them, is because of all the mess that comes with it. And who causes that mess? Mainly Muslims. And anybody else that's causing the problems, like do you have a problem whether our embassies, who cares where our embassies are, right? But the reason why we have a problem with our embassy being in, or anyone else has a problem with our embassy being in Jerusalem, is because the Muslims have such a problem. And they are a, a hornet's nest, to be sure, that nobody wants to mess with. And I think it's worth our, a moment of our time, and I think it, it does indeed bleed into what we're going to be talking about this morning, to have a brief discussion. Of course, it's be monologuing. You're not going to get to ask any questions. So. But uh, about why. Do you understand why? I mean, if, if you understand... I think, I think maybe you, you would assume the typical understanding of the average Westerner is to assume the reason why the Muslim doesn't want the Jew to occupy Jerusalem is because of anti-Semitic feelings. And I would say this, that if that is your position, you're, you don't know what you need to know. Uh, I, I definitely the Muslims don't like the Jews, but they have not liked them near as li least as they have in more recent years because for centuries, Jews and Arabs, Jews and Muslims, I should say, lived together in peace. Uh, the Jews, in fact, basically ran the Arab world. Uh, they ran the businesses and ran the banks and Baghdad and Riyadh and all the what we classic Muslim countries. They were all ran by Jews and without any problem. I mean, there's there some anti-Semitism, but really they got along fine. They considered themselves brothers. They're both born of, of Abraham, one a descendant of, of Isaac and the other one the son of Ishmael. And they call themselves that, by the way, the sons of Ishmael, the sons of Isaac. They've gotten along for centuries with no problems, but because Israel recently, or actually the state of Israel was recreated back in the land of Israel, in particular Jerusalem, then now that something has changed. And so I want to explain to you why that's, that's an issue in order, to, in order for us to do that. But, but, but let, let me first of all just say this. Why would the Muslims throw such a fit over, over such an unimpressive city? And here's, by the way, the, the, this is not the whole city of Jerusalem. This is just the 
uh, I guess you could say the iconic representation of when we think of Jerusalem, we think of this because this is all we've ever known in our lifetime and previous, the previous 1,500 years of man's existence, these two places, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Mosque or the Dome of the Rock are here on the Temple Mount and they have existed there. They're the iconic representation of Jerusalem, but they are not Jewish. They are Muslim. Now, but but why, why would... Um, why would a Muslim be so concerned about what happens in Jerusalem when a Muslim, like I said, possesses, Muslims possess Baghdad, they possess Cairo, they possess Riyadh, they possess Tehran, they possess Damascus, Beirut, Istanbul, Mecca, anymore it seems like they're possessing Berlin, uh, uh, Paris, Brussels, London, Detroit. Why, why would, a, would a religious group who possess such powerful, influential, and let me say this, much more beautiful cities. Jerusalem, guys, is kind of, <laughs> as far as the way it looks. It really is. There's kind of, it's kind of, eh. Nothing compared to these other cities. No natural resources, no seaport, no airport. 800,000 people. You got that many people practically in Brownsville. And not a whole lot better looking than Brownsville. Sorry if you're from Brownsville. But I'm telling you, it's just, it's just not that big of a deal. So they possess these incredible world centers, in many cases, money. You talk about the places where the oil and gas reserves are. Oh, my goodness. Why would they care even a moment about a little dot on a map that has no strategic position, nothing about it whatsoever? Why would it be such a heart issue? And why are they throwing up and willing to kill themselves or have someone else kill them over such a city? Well, in order for you to understand that, you'd have to be a Muslim, first of all, which I'm hoping you're not. So let me help you be a Muslim just for temporary sake, for the sake of just so you can understand their theology. In order, in order to be a devout Muslim, you have to understand that they see everything from a theological position. Sort of like we, we, we promote here as Christians, that you should see everything from the perspective of God and understand everything is God being involved in it. And they do the same thing, of course, with the wrong God. They see the same thing. They get up in the morning for the sake of their God. They go to bed at night for the sake of their God. They go to work for the sake of their God. They own businesses. They raise their children all for the sake and glory of their God. They blow themselves up for the sake of their God. I don't know if you saw some of the real news out there pushing their kids out in front of the Israeli soldiers so that they could have them shot because they believe, again, theology, everything's from a theological perspective. They believe that if that child is shot by an Israeli, that child gets an instant, instant entrance into heaven. No, no, hold, no holdover, no purgatory for this kid. He goes straight to, straight to heaven according to their theology. So again, everything is from a theological perspective. Everything is from the, when, when they blow up our tanks and Humvees, they, they're saying, Alu, al, Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar means praise the Lord in Arabic. They're just saying praise the Lord as they blow people up. Everything is from a theological perspective. Nothing, for, for a devout Muslim, nothing is without theology. So part of their religious, and here's where we're getting to, their religious mindset includes believing that they as Muslims, they as Muslim, Muslims includes other th things other than Arab, right? The largest Muslim country is not an Arab country, it is Indonesia. They're not Arab. The largest population of Muslims in the world. As far as Muslims are concerned, though, they believe that they are the now chosen people of God. You, unless you understand that, you will not understand why they do what they do. They believe, and they believe that history supports, and in particular their occupation of Jerusalem, this city, supports the fact or supports their conclusion that they are the children of God. Here's their theology. They were taught this. They were taught this by Muhammad originally. 
that the Jews were originally people, the people of God, that God chose them, but they forsook God, and so God forsook them. And the demonstration that God forsook them is the fact, and it is a fact, that he removed the city of Jerusalem and the, the land of Israel from their possession in AD 70. AD 70, five Roman legions marched against the Jews, killed over a million Jews, and ran every last Jew out of the country. And they have been outside of that country, with a few exceptions, they've been outside of that country until 1948. This is where the problem starts, by the way. They've been out of that country, and the Jews and the Arabs, or the Jews and the Muslims always got along because there was no theological conflict for them. So, so, so the, the, the Jews were originally God's chosen people, but they were ceased to be God's chosen people in the mind of the Muslim when they left the city or ran out of the city in AD 70, and then God gave the city and their theology to the Christians, and that's true. The Christians occupied, ran the city for some 450 to 500 years, and then they were ran out of the city by who? By the Muslims. So their conclusion is, is that they've been occupying that city for now 1,500 years. Their icons of their religion are on the Temple Mount, the Mosque of Omar, the, the Dome of the Rock and the Mosque of Omar, or the Al-Aqsa Mosque, are on the Temple Mount. They have concluded that they are the people of God. And everything historically has said that that is true because they have remained in control up until recently. After the end of the Second World War, actually before the Second World War, the Jews started moving back into their lands, sort of buying and acquiring lands. And then after, of course, the Holocaust in 1948, the Jews move in mass or before that in, in, into the land of Israel and they declare themselves an independent state and they win a battle against four or five different uh, Islamic uh, countries. And they begin to gain more and more control over the land of Israel. 1967, I was born that year, some of you were here in other ways than I was. Uh, 1967, they conquered Jerusalem. They had no control over Jerusalem whatsoever until 1967. They conquered Jerusalem and they gained temporary control over the Temple Mount. They immediately gave it back to the UN because the Jews are not in control of Jerusalem. Don't, never doubt that. They're not. They're not in control of Israel. They're not in control of Jerusalem. And if you think they are, then ask them, tell me, why are, why are Islamic mosques on top of their Temple Mount? They're not sovereign in a, in, a, in a supposedly sovereign state, they're not sovereign, to be sure. You think David would have put up that on his temple mount? Uh-uh. Solomon, no. He was sovereign. They are not sovereign. The Bible says they will not be sovereign until Jesus comes back. Nonetheless, they are gaining control over the land. So what does that say to the Muslim? Brings the question that maybe we aren't God's chosen people anymore, or maybe we never were. Maybe we were wrong. It's, it's hard to say you're wrong, isn't it? It's hard to say you're wrong about a few things, hard, especially in their case, it's really hard to say you're wrong about everything, which of course they are. Now, so either on the one hand, they have to accept the fact, swallow their pride and humble themselves and say, we were wrong, please forgive us, or they have to die to prove otherwise. So what are they doing? That's why they're doing what they do. That's why they do what they do. So it has a lot to do with what we're talking about today, actually here in Daniel chapter two, Actually, it has a lot to do with Daniel's, the, the dream that Daniel, Daniel's going to interpret here for Nebuchadnezzar, because he interprets this dream, the sweep of history from Nebuchadnezzar all the way to the return in Christ. And get, guess what the focal city is? This Jerusalem. No surprises. Where we are today, please don't misread what's going on around us. The reason why this city that has absolutely nothing to offer you, unless you're interested in limestone, nothing to offer is the focal point of all the world, 800,000 people, nothing there, nothing to see, plenty of better looking places, and yet it is what it is. 
So in some ways, the Muslims are right. It is the most important city in the world. And the reason why you should know it's the most important city of the world, because the Bible tells us it is the most important city to God. His son was born seven miles from this place, as the crow flies. His son died for our sins on a cross outside the gates of this city. His son consequently rose again, or subsequently rose again from the dead, right outside those same gates. His son also ascended into heaven on a hill just to the east of it called the, the Mount of Olives. And the Bible also says in Zechariah 14 that that is the exact place. We don't know when Jesus will return, but we know exactly where he's going to return to. He's going to return back to the Mount of Olives and from there take possession of the entire world which he bought with his blood. Not just, not just sinners did he buy, but he bought possession, rebought everything back to God. He's going to take possession of the world and what is going to be his capital city? Jerusalem. It is the most important city in the world. It is indeed the physical most important city in the world. So, so part of the reason why Nebuchadnezzar has the dream that he has here in chapter 2 is because of what he does to this city. In 586 BC, he brings all his armies for the fourth time, for the third time against this city, and he's ticked. And he kills every last Jew that he can get his hands on in there and deports the rest of them. But he levels the city. He wipes the Temple Mount completely clean. He burns what can be burned and unstacks every single rock. And he devastates the city. And the city sits without an inhabitant for 70 straight years as prophesied by Jeremiah. And that's where we are. Part part of that exile is where we find Daniel. Daniel is, is a Jewish exile living in a foreign country. And we have this story that's encompassing what's going on here. And, and uh, Jesus continued to, to demonstrate in, by the things that he said that this, this exile, if you will, this lack of Jewish control over Jerusalem and Israel is going to remain. He says they will fall by the edge of the sword and they will be led captive into all nations, speaking of the Jews, and the Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Nebuchadnezzar begins these times, if you will, this parade of Gentile kings and kingdoms. And this parade doesn't end until the return of the one who spoke these words. Jerusalem, this is his lament, and this is what we just said to the kids a minute ago. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who are sent to you, how often... I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers your chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They will say it, but it will not be theirs. They will not be in full possession of this city. Like I said, if you think Israel is, not, is, is in control of Jerusalem or in control of Israel, then tell me why the UN gets to decide who lives where in Israel. If you're sovereign... So is the UN telling you where you can live in the United States? Maybe. You know, we're not far from that. But we're sovereign here. They're not sovereign over there. They haven't been since Nebuchadnezzar. 2,500 years of no real sovereignty. The Jews are very powerful people and and certainly don't want to mess with their armies. Nonetheless, it's not the same. So there is not going to be a peace in Jerusalem until the Prince of Peace himself comes and physically enforces it. So let's consider the sweep of history that we have here in Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody take a deep breath. Because we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of stuff you're probably not going to like because you didn't like history back in, so don't fall asleep on me, okay? The sweep of history from Nebuchadnezzar to the return of Jesus is covered by this one chapter in Daniel. It's important that you see this. Why give, first of all, why give Nebuchadnezzar this dream before we get into it? Why? 
since, since it's going to be lasting from Nebuchadnezzar all the way through our day and all the way till Christ returns and Christ isn't back yet, why, why not give it somewhere in the middle? Why, why, why load it all up front as soon as things happen, then you give the first king that tramples underfoot the city this prophecy or this dream that turns into a prophecy? Why do it? Well, so we've already said one of the reasons is because of, he starts the parade. He's the first one to trample underfoot, so that, that's a reason. The second reason I think is a more powerful reason, a more compelling one, is because it, it brings into question, since, since the, the city is no longer to the control of the Jews, and since the Jews are exiled at this point by the time Daniel makes this prophecy or reads this dream, it raises the question and makes the assumption, by the way, which is very Muslim, and they come at it very honestly, and many others have come to the same conclusion, that God has since rejected Israel and that the promises, the unilateral and conditional promises that he made to Israel, God has just said, you know what, forget it. Here's his promises that he's made to the Jews, and you need to mark them carefully because, like I said, they are unilateral, they're not bilateral. You, he promises to give them the land and the city forever. Forever. So how long does forever last? That's a long time. So has he backed up on that? It raises the question if they're not in the city. Raises the question if, if, if Nebuchadnezzar has raised the city. Raises the question if we've got a progression of Gentile kings, they're going to be rolling over them all the way until today, still doing it. Raises the question if he's going to keep that promise to the Jews. Number two, the promise that he made that a king would be descended from the line of the bloodline of David and would reign in the city of Jerusalem forever. Raises the question. Has he backed up on that too? Also, he made a unilateral promise. He promised that through the Jews, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So has he forfeited that? See, because these are immediate questions, because of the condition that the Jews are in, Nebuchadnezzar receives this dream. So God front loads it and says, I'm fast forwarding you to the end, Tito, that I'm keeping my promises. I'm keeping them, even though it may not look like it. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's interpretation. Look at verse 28. Chapter 2, verse 28. So remember, Nebuchadnezzar's had this incredible dream, and it's disturbed him greatly. So he's called in all of his cronies that he inherited from his dad, these supposed soothsayers and magicians and all these guys, these guys that can predict the future and tell dreams and all this kind of stuff. And he says, give me the interpretation of my dream. But he says, the way I'm going to know that you can interpret my dream is you have to first tell me what I dreamed. So if you can tell me what I dreamed last night, then I will believe what you'll say about that dream from here on. Does that make sense? That's a fail-safe program. If you're really soothsayers, I mean, if you really can predict the future, then you certainly can read the past, especially yesterday. And so anybody said, by the way, if you don't, I'm going to have you all killed along with all your families, and I'm going to raise all of your homes and make a rubbish heap out of all of them, just so you know. So he's, he's, either one, he's going to get interpretation of his dream, or two, he's going to clean house. So it's headed toward cleaning house because, of course, nobody can come up with a dream, much less the interpretation. And Daniel says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I know a God in heaven who can answer this. Give me some time. He gets some time. And he and his friends go away and pray. He comes back with interpretation. Remember, Daniel is a teenager standing in front of the most powerful man in the world who's got blood in his eyes. Man, he's mad and he's upset. So let's, let's keep reading here. Verse 28. However, he, Daniel, this is Daniel coming and saying, listen, there's no one that can interpret this for you. However, he says there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. You might want to underline those two words. This was your dream and the visions, he goes on to tell him what the dream was while he lay on his bed. First of all, I want to back up for a second and look at these words, this phrase, in the latter days. Now, it is not a phrase restricted to Nebuchadnezzar. It is what is called an eschatological statement. Can you say that? 
eschatological statement. So you can run Trivial Pursuit, the next Babel trivia you play. Eschatological statement. And the reason why it's called an eschatological statement is because it's taken from the Greek word eschatos, which means last things. It's a statement about last things. So it's not talking about the latter days of Nebuchadnezzar's reign or the latter days of Daniel's administration or anything. It's talking about the last of the last of the last when everything that we know of in this world ceases and turns into something else. The very latter days. This eschatological statement that he makes here. The latter days, by the way, this term is very common in your Old Testament. Very common. It is repeated prophetic statement in the Old Testament in Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 31, Numbers 34, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 30, Jeremiah 48, Jeremiah 49, Ezekiel 38, Daniel 10, Micah 4, etc., etc., etc. One of the most common phrases speaking of the end events. And, and let me just tell you this. You're familiar with Jesus' first coming, I'm assuming. Jesus came, was born of a virgin, Died to pay for our sins, rose again to prove that he was a savior, not just some prophet speaking out of prophesying about pizza or anything. He was real. He was the real deal. That's Jesus's first coming. Jesus' second coming is what we're dealing with today. But for every prophecy in your Old Testament, and there's a lot of them, 300 something of them, for every prophecy in the Old Testament about Jesus's first coming, for instance, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin that he would uh, ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every prophecy of Jesus' first coming in the Old Testament, there are eight prophecies of his second coming in the Old Testament. So an eight to one ratio. So, so if you don't know much about his second coming, you don't know much. There's a whole bunch of your Bible that you're not getting. And so we're not going to take the time to take you, teach you all those things. But we have the cliff notes here. Daniel's going to, like I said, fast forward us through all this, or actually God is, and the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has and that Daniel interprets. So this latter days is a term that encompasses Jesus' return and the events surrounding his return. Okay? By the way, it's a, it's a term that's been hijacked by another cult, the latter days. You hear that? The Church of Jesus Christ. Of uh, the Latter Day Saints, a cult called the Mormons, who just the similar, same, just like the Muslims, think they have a different conclusion to the way history is going to go, and they're just as wrong as the Muslims. Let's hear. Actually, let's see how it's actually going to go. Look at verse thirty-one. So Daniel says, "You were on your bed, you dreamed of dreams, and this is what you saw." Verse thirty-one: You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. This is a dream now, not real, just a dream. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. And the head of that statue was made of fine gold, and its breast of the arms of silver. These are not random metals, okay? These are precise. They they precisely describe events and kingdoms that are available available for us now historically. Head of gold, the breast and arms of silver, the belly was of thighs of bronze, and the legs of iron, and the feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you continued looking, he said, telling him his dream, until a stone was cut out without hands. Mark that carefully. So up until now, we've had something created by human hands, and now God's going to introduce something not made by human hands. A stone, he says. And it struck the statue on its feet. Notice not the legs, not the arms, not the head. Struck it at its feet. It's important also because you need to know how history is going to play. And crushed them, it says. And then the iron, verse 35, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff 
from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we shall tell his interpretation before the king. So he goes on, and we're going to look at the interpretation in just a second. So what this image represents is four world empires parading in succession across the stage of history, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar. And the thing that marks them is not just world domination, but the fact that their thumb is on the city of Jerusalem in particular. Okay? This is significant. Jerusalem is the key to all this. And it's going to parade all the way until the coming of Christ to he whom the throne in Israel in Jerusalem belongs. So that's what this parade is. Like I said, it's a sweep all the way through. So the first kingdom, we have now the interpretation that Daniel's going to give. The first kingdom is that of Babylon. And we're going to hear that from Daniel right now. Look at verse 38. Look at verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings. To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the strength, and the glory, and wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky. I'm talking about to be a king of everything. He was. He has given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of goals. There's no way to misinterpret it. How do we know? Well, so effectively, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, but he basically was Babylon. In fact, Babylon, as soon as Nebuchadnezzar passes away, Babylon just kind of trails off into nothing. Only, Babylon, only as, a, as a kingdom, only lasts 70 years, and Nebuchadnezzar reigns 40 of those 70 years. So they, his, his sons and grandsons can't hold it together, and they're taken over by the next kingdom, which takes us to the next, next one. So then, then rise the second, second major kingdom. After Babylon comes the Medo-Persians, and this describes them very well. Verse 39. And after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. I said, how do we know it's the Medes and Persians? Because it's a matter of history. Babylonians were conquered by the Medes and the Persians, and they occupied the Middle East and all the known world for some 200, 200 some odd years. They ruled the world. Now, I would underline and make a dispute of myself with you against what it says there in your Bible. It calls the next kingdom inferior. And I would say that a dispute because there is a, there is a dispute over the word, the Hebrew word that's there. And I fall on the side of saying it's not the word inferior. And the reason why I say that is because it can be translated either way. The, the word literally means in Hebrew to be lower than. And so if I say so-and-so is inferior to me, that's one thing. If I say so-and-so is just lower than me, that may, may mean he's just down on the next step, right? And that's really what I think is going on here. It's just the step down. So a head of gold, chest of silver, it's just the next step down, the next kingdom, if you will. Not necessarily inferior. The reason why I say that is because, because really that's, that's what history teaches us. History teaches us that, yes, Babylon was a powerful kingdom and had a powerful king, Nebuchadnezzar, but the next kingdom, the Medes and Persians, were far more powerful, vast army, millions of men in their armies conquered tremendous territory that Babylon never conquered. And so it's not necessarily inferior, but I will say this, it is an inferior metal though, isn't it? I mean, would you rather have a cup full of silver or a cup full of gold? I'm going to go with the gold, all right? You can have my silver, I'm going to take the gold. It is an inferior metal. So the gold, by the way, gold, and then it gives way to silver, which gives way to bronze, which gives way to iron. Would you rather have a cup full of iron or a cup full of gold? Which one's more valuable? They were back then, they are now. Gold is always, so, so they're decreasing in value, but they're increasing in strength. Gold is not a very strong metal. I mean, you can mash it with your fingers practically. Silver is stronger than gold. Bronze is stronger than silver. Of course, iron is stronger than all of them. So they're decreasing in value, increasing in strength. And this is important that we understand this because that's exactly what his, history teaches us. So the Medes and Persians 
took over, they conquered and took over for the Babylonians, and then after them came another group. They were eclipsed by an even more powerful, more, gaining more territory, led by a guy by the name of Alexander the Great, namely the Greeks. Look at verse 30, 38, 39 and the following. And then after you, there's a kingdom, I'm sorry, verse 39. After you, there will rise another kingdom inferior to you, and then a third kingdom, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth. That's very interesting. Now, many people dispute Daniel. Or I should say have disputed Daniel. They disputed Daniel because Daniel's predictions of the future were so accurate, for instance, like calling this kingdom a bronze kingdom, so accurate that most people believed that Daniel must have been written after the fact. So it's easy for me to write what happened once it's already happened, right? But it's altogether a different thing for me to write what's going to happen before it's ever happened. Don't you agree? Of course, Daniel is purported to be that way, but we had no copies of Daniel that were anywhere close to the ages of when Daniel would have written this until 1947 when they uncovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. Among the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a copy of Daniel which predated Christ some 300 years. Predated most of the events that Daniel predicted, by the way indicating that Daniel had been written sometime way even before that. And so all these knuckleheads that wrote their um, dissertations about how inaccurate, how Daniel was written actually after the fact actually got to, you know, I guess they lost their PhDs. I hope they did. I think most of them are dead anyway. Doesn't matter. Never regretting it now. So Daniel was so accurate in predicting this next kingdom, which, by the way, happens to be the Greek kingdom. So, so the Babylonians were destroyed and taken over by the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians were destroyed and taken over by, by the Greeks. And the Greeks are described here as the bronze people, if you will. That's exactly the way they were referred to in history. The Greeks were called by the ancients the brazen-coated warriors because that's the way they clad themselves. So here's a, an artist's depiction. Nope, that's an artist's depiction of a... There we go. An artist's depiction on the left of a Persian soldier, kind of dressed more Middle Eastern, got a turban on his head, got a cape on, and lots of silver because they were the silver kingdom, right? And this is a depiction of what came from the West, the Greeks, Alexander the Great, clad almost 100% in bronze, bronze greaves, bronze spear, bronze helmet, bronze uh, 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 chest guard, uh, bronze uh, shield, bronze leggings, bronze everything, bronze, bronze, bronze. They would shine them up super bright. And then on top of their helmet, you set red crest. That's actually grass. And they would dye it red. And it looked like this bright, super bright, golden-looking army coming at you with blood running off the top of their head. And they were, they were into shock and awe, and it worked. Uh, it really did. And Alexander the Great, of course, was an amazing tactician. So, but again, interesting how Daniel, who wrote beforehand, predicts exactly what this kingdom would be like. And you're going to find Daniel doing that over and over again. Nothing for Daniel. Daniel's just a dude who loved the Lord and listened to him. All the glory to God. And all the glory to the Bible that he's inspired that you have in front of you. Pay attention to what it says. So anyway, so these soldiers are that way. And then comes, and then comes the fourth and final. Very little said about these kingdoms. But the final kingdom has a lot to say because it is altogether different than the other ones. Beginning in verse 40. And then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron... Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. So the Babylonians were conquered by the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians were conquered by the Greeks. The Greeks were conquered by the Romans. The dominion of iron. That's what they were known as. Clad in iron, all kinds of, they were powerful. 
And just like iron is, like I said, these metals are decreasing in value, but increasing in strength. So the Romans were, did it better than anyone else. In fact, there has never been the most powerful kingdom that has ever existed in the history of humanity is the Romans. The longest, the most powerful, the most conclusive, everything you want to say about them. The Roman Empire is the strongest the world has ever known. Babylon lasted for some 70 years. Medo-Persia lasted for about 200 years. The Greeks only lasted for about 200 years. Rome existed as an official republic for 500 years. So more than twice as long as any other kingdom. They're the kingdom of iron. They held it together better than anyone else. Again, like I said, Daniel is, is opposed because people say he must have written after the fact. He did not write after the fact. He's predicting by the Spirit of God here. And, so actually, and actually, it was Nebuchadnezzar that got the dream to begin with. Don't forget that. So Rome is the final empire according to this dream. Who took over Rome? So, so Babylon was destroyed by the Medo-Persians, and they took over the same day. The Medo-Persians were destroyed by the Greeks, and they took over the same day. The, 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 the Greeks were, destroy, was, were destroyed by the Romans, and they took over the same day. The Romans were destroyed by no one, actually. Rome, the city, was sacked by the Visigoths and by the Vandals, where we get that name from. Vandalized, right? But all they wanted was women, booze, and loot. And as soon as they got that, they left town. They wanted nothing to do with Roman Im- Empire. They just wanted stuff, and they got it, and they left. Rome basically dissolved into its essential elements. Anybody here have ancestors from Europe or the Middle East or North Africa? That's about 100% of us. You are Romans. Welcome to Rome. Rome is the West. That's who we are. You think of Roman, don't think Italian. That's just, they were on the Italian peninsula, but they were Europe. They were North Africa. They were the Middle East. They were the Turks. They were everything. They were, they were all this. Rome, Paul was a Roman citizen, born a Roman citizen. What, what nationality was he? He was Jewish. So he had nothing to do with nationality. He had everything to do with location. The Rome, Rome controlled all this area. So Rome was never destroyed. And according to what it teaches here, and let's keep reading, Rome will reconstitute itself, verse 41. And that, that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. Here we are. We're divided up. But it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with clay. Rome is still in power, guys. Rome represented by the Catholic Church. Rome represented by the Europe. Here we are. Europe is coming together like it hasn't ever in 2,000 years. Europeans have been killing each other in world wars for this previous century, and now what do we have? We have a common currency. We have a common army. We have, have common industry common government that our ancestors 200 years ago would have never dreamed that with Napoleon and all these others, much less Hitler, uh, in this past century, they would have never dreamed of that. And now it's come, even though they try to enforce it with force, now it's coming together by peace. Something's happening. Watch Europe because it's going to reconstitute. So phase one of the Roman empire, ancient Rome is this solid iron, if you will, lower torso. Phase two will be this reunification and with respective parts but it will happen and will last only until the final kingdom comes, if you will, the rock, verse 44. And in that day, in the days of those kings, that's speaking of the toes. How many toes will this statue have? Nine, ten, how many toes will this statue have? What do you think? If it's built after one of us, I've got ten toes so far. I'm thinking it's going to have ten. So in the days of these ten kings, we'll talk about that in chapter 7 if you're hanging around a couple of months from now. In the day of those ten kings, it says, verse 44, he will set up, God will, a kingdom which will never be destroyed, 
This is that rock that was cut without human hands. That kingdom will not be left for another people and will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future so that the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So there you have Daniel's, Daniel's story. So you made it. One, let me say one more thing to you. So I told you that the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is an image that is decreasing in value as far as the metals are concerned, increasing in strength, also decreasing in specific gravity. Have any chemists here? Specific gravity has to do, well, let me put it this way. If I had a cup full of gold and an equal-sized cup full of iron, which one will weigh more? The gold will. It's more valuable. It's got a higher specific gravity. Likewise, so I've got a, I've got a statue that's topped with gold and decked at the bottom with iron. I've got a statue that weighs twice as much at the top as it does at the bottom. What does that tell you? Tell you, you should have got a better engineer to build this thing because the thing's not going to stand, is it? You don't build stuff top-heavy unless you expect it to fall. And that's exactly where we are. Human society is top-heavy. Top-heavy, loaded with sin. We are not, we are in a precarious, we have always been in a precarious position. We, we are in our society, Western culture, especially the United States, we are decaying rapidly, nationally, socially, domestically, individually, organically. We are decaying, are we not? We're not evolving. We're devolving. We're coming apart. So I want to read to you in conclusion what Professor Alexander Tyler has said. By the way, Alexander Tyler lived more than 200 years ago, and when he said this, he did not say it about our uh, republic, our, our democracy. He said it about a previous republic called the Greeks, one of these progression of nations. This is what he said about them. This is before our colonies were anything other than colonies of England. He writes this. He's not writing about us, even though it's going to sound that way. This is what he says. A democracy, hear me carefully, cannot exist as a permanent form of government. Here's the reason. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves money from the public treasury. Sound familiar? Sound like this dude was on the news yesterday to me. Now, this is a guy that lived 200 years ago, and he's not writing about the United States of America because there was no United States of America. He's writing about the Republic of the Greeks, dissolved more than 2,000 years ago. He goes on to say, from that moment on, as they can vote themselves money from the treasury, the majority always votes for the candidate promising the most benefits from the public treasury with the result that a democracy always collapses over the loose physical policy that it promotes and always is followed by dictatorship. I hope that's not bad news for you, but you need to know that. The average age, he goes on to say, of the world's greatest civilizations is 200 years. Like I said, Greeks, 200 years. Middle Persians, 200 years. Babylon, only 70 years. Rome was an exception to that. These nations, it says, have progressed from the following sequence without exception. From bondage to spiritual faith. From spiritual faith to great courage. From courage to liberty. From liberty to abundance. From abundance to selfishness. I think we're past that one even, don't you think? From selfishness to complacency. I think we're past that. From complacency to apathy. From apathy, listen, to dependency. From dependency back into bondage. So I'm, I'm, not, trying to, I'm, not, trying to, I'm not trying to rain on your 4th of July parade this coming summer. But I do think you need to know what's going on. I really think you need to know. And ultimately, you need to know that America, as far as the Bible prophecy is concerned, does not exist. 
she's out for whatever reason. I think we're knowing the reasons why. We can see the reasons. I can see the clouds. I can see the clouds building. I don't know if you can. But, but either, either, it doesn't matter. And I don't, I'm not saying don't, be, don't pray for America. Don't pray for our nation. Don't pray for revival. I'm not saying all that. I'm just saying don't put your hope in stuff like that. Since, since you know how the game is going to end, then you know how to play the game. Since you know who's flying the plane and where he's going to land it, you know how to handle the ride. Since, since you know who's going to win, and that's all Daniel's telling us here. Fast forward to the end, you know how it's going to end. Since you know how it's going to end, make sure you're on the right team. It would be an incredible mistake to think that anything other than what the Bible says is true is going to be anything other than what happens in the future. Huge mistake. To not be rightly related to God. God has made his peace through us, it says. God has reconciled himself to the sinful humanity by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die to pay for our sins. God has reconciled himself to us. Now the ball is in our court. We must now be reconciled to God. The way we reconcile ourselves to God is we accept his peace offer. I'm going to make my peace with God. No, you're not. God has made his peace with you. You accept it or reject it. Heaven or hell is a consequence. Where do you stand today? Since you know who's flying the plane, you know how it's going to land. Where do you stand? Where's your hope? I'm going to ask you, please stand, or stand with me, bow your heads, close your eyes. God has sent his son Jesus not to be just the Savior, but to be your Savior. That's a decision you have to make. That rock, the Savior, is coming, and he's going to enforce peace. He's going to lay claim to all that is his, rightfully, eternally his. You sure want to be on the right team when that happens. But the choice we have to make is now. We're not looking at the return of Christ. We're not facing the reconstitution of the Roman Empire. We're we're looking at life and death right now. Where do you stand with him right now? Do you know Christ as personal Savior? Have you trusted him? Have you said not just, I know Jesus is the Savior. Have you said, I want him to be my Savior? Jesus, I'm asking you to be my Savior. The Scripture says all who call upon him will be saved. No exceptions. There's no exception. He makes no exceptions to that because God is gracious to us because Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins. God is calling us to be reconciled to him. God, I thank you so much that you have reconciled yourself to us through your Son. And we live in an age and a day of grace where it seems that uh, horrible things happen and yet you're not bringing about judgment. But it's only because you do not desire for anyone to get what's coming to them. Instead, you, you desire repentance. You desire to give them what you want, to ha- want them to have, which is your forgiveness, which is your heaven, which is your eternal life. God, I thank you that you are so kind to us. Thank you for showing us these things, God. And since we know how the game is going to end, we know how to play the game. We know how to ride the ride. So God, I pray that we would be the kind of people that recognizes as we see the end from, from way back here, that we would live differently, respectively towards what you're doing. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.